Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. In this podcast, Rodney White describes his years of experience in medicines information, the difference between clinical experience and product PIs, as well as sharing on emotional intelligence, telehealth, collaborative work, and resources available for pharmacists to gain great information to share with their patients. Okay. Um, so yeah, can I please ask for an introduction? Good evening, Carleen. My name is Rodney White, and I am the senior pharmacist in charge of medicines information at Monash Medicines in Monash Health in Melbourne. I have been in that role for something in the vicinity of oh, at least 25 years plus, going on 30 plus a bit more even maybe, who's counting? And my role in that uh, setting, it, it, it sounds it sounds big, but it, we are very small. In fact, I'm normally the only pharmacist in that area and as a function of that I normally have an intern or a trainee pharmacist with me uh, for most of the year uh, and their job is to assist and my job is to impart wisdom and experience uh, and help them guide them through their internship and we have well, this year we've got 14 interns, so we rotate those people through as they would with other departments within our hospital. And uh, it's a great learning experience for them because they really do get a taste of just about everything to do with hospital life and pharmacy life and uh, a whole range of other experiences along the way. Can I find out a little bit more about your role, um, specifically in medicine information? What does a day look like for you? And um, is there any areas that you specialize in or you cover all medicines information um, questions? That's a good question. We have a reputation for expertise in pregnancy, breastfeeding, and pediatric medicines, particularly. Um, but we'll take questions on just about anything. And my general background was one of clinical pharmacy. I uh, spent a lot of time in in fairly important roles of renal medicine and psychiatric medicine and cardiology and gastroenterology and a whole range of other things. So I've got a very variable background from the clinical perspective. Uh, so people, we don't get to determine what people ask us. We respond to their queries and it's interesting, um, medicines information has been struggling in recent years, which is very sad. Um, a number of points to that. Uh, it's considered that all clinical pharmacists are medicines information pharmacists these days, I think. But the specialty role allows you a little bit more time allocation to focus on particular queries rather than in a, in a clinical setting, as you are in community pharmacy. Now, people think it's a hospital role. My work is more in the community sector. So I talk on a daily basis with lots of GPs, lots of community pharmacists, lots of maternal and child health nurses, 
midwives, dietitians, podiatrists, all sorts of really interesting healthcare professionals and also members of the public who have questions, anything to do with, as I said, anything to do with medicines basically, but specifically orientated. I, I, we don't advertise our service at all, but we appear in the major texts, A&H, etc., as an expert centre, um, with respect to, particularly with pregnancy, breastfeeding and paediatrics, but we'll talk to people about any aspect of medical conditions, problems. You said it's a dying industry or dying role. Has there been changes in medicines information in the last... Well, not so much that. It's just that other areas of pharmacy practice have expanded so rapidly and so um, comprehensively. For example, we've got pharmacists... Compared to when I was an intern, which is a very long time ago, um, there was more scope for a medicines information specialist, whereas these days, as I said, everybody's considered to some extent a medicines information specialist. Um, but where do, why is it, why is it, it, it is not a focus of attention these days. And I was a part of the, the, what they call the Committee of Specialty Practice for many, many years, the leadership group. And we found that more and more there was an emphasis on clinical pharmacy and less and less there was a, um, a focus on medicines information or provision of medicines information, which is very sad because they're very closely aligned anyway. And I'd like to see more emphasis put into that, but it's, but it's a, it's a, it's a jack of all trades. It's a, it's a multi-skilled area, whereas we tend to be focusing on very specialised roles within the sector these days. Community pharmacists, unfortunately, they just don't have the time or the resources to be able to provide the level of expertise that, that's necessary for that role, unfortunately. That's why they call us. <laughs> so... What does your day normally look like? You maybe receive 20, 30 calls? 40, 50, usual numbers in terms of... It, it's hard to give you a day-to-day -day proposition in terms of medicines information. You take what comes at you. And some days you will take 50 to 60 calls. Some days you might only take 30 or 40 calls. It just depends on what's happening and where the action is. For example, COVID saw a big boost in calls because A, there was a big requirement for medicines uh, and different medicines and new expertises and a lot of GPs were very much out of that loop. Sadly, the Department of Health left them a little bit stranded as to information and knowledge and and uh, comfort zone, it's out of their comfort zone a lot of the time, as is, again, particularly, that's why I guess they've been happy to come to us for advice about pregnancy, breastfeeding and paediatrics, because it's very poorly dealt with by your everyday professional resources, and there's a lot that goes beyond those resources that's very, very important in this area of practice. And so it's something 
you, you do not learn in the routine run of education, shall we say. Because you said that you have interns with you. Are they there as part of uh, pre-registration or part of um, before they move on to another department of medicine's information? So for your training, what happens with the interns when they finish with you? Uh, so, as I said, the uh, um, Monash Medicine's information, uh, we take one for a two-week rotation and then they will rotate through all of the other areas of the pharmacy department at Monash Health, uh, including some very exotic areas of practice. Uh, hospital has evolved enormously in terms of what they offer interns and what they offer pharmacists as scope of practice. You. And I know how much the roles in, in hospital have evolved uh, over time. And so many, many people don't have any concept when they come into a department like ours. They think, oh, yeah, it's you know, 40 or 50 people. And it might be, um, you know, a few roles in traditionally intravenous additives and sterile practice and then manufacturing and outpatient pharmacy and clinical pharmacy but it goes a lot beyond that now we have something in the vicinity of four or five hundred staff across the Monash Health Pharmacy departments these days a lot of technician roles a lot of roles for a whole range of people that they've never considered previously and probably still wouldn't know about unless you came in and saw them in operation. Thank you. So throughout your time and your experience, you've probably had some innovative opportunities to change the way practice is done, challenge something that's been done in pharmacy practice. So I thought I'd ask you about any um, innovative ideas you might have to share or anything that you've, yeah, challenged all I think I wouldn't say that I've been particularly innovative but I've worked with some incredibly innovative and inspiring people and that's what gives me the energy to work in my role the people I work with the people that have trained me over the years and have been a part of my career and uh, I give great um thanks and um, and take great pleasure in having worked with them and seen them in action. And some of those people were wonderful innovators, uh, particularly with great insight. Uh, you know, I mentioned Ian Lamore, Yvonne Allenson, Shirley Shannon. I've been very fortunate to work with some very strong women. And I think that's been a really positive role model for what I do, working with women, talking to women, perhaps empathising with them and being able to communicate with them at a level that everybody feels comfortable with. It's not an easy area of practice to to talk through, as, particularly as a member of the public. And so a lot of my role is educating. I do feel proud that I've been able to get out and I give a lot of, or I have over the years, given a lot of uh, presentations to a whole diverse range of people. So Particularly, I must have given literally hundreds of uh, presentations to, for example, the Australian Breastfeeding Association and their membership, uh, people like Panda, some of the psychological uh, health, uh, Beyond Blue, uh, Panda, 
uh, two people that I work with quite closely, and then a lot of maternal and child health nurses, and a lot of a lot of um, uh, midwifery, a lot of nursing students as well. I've spoken to it, and I feel proud that I've been able to help educate them into the ways of medicines and some of the the um, the pitfalls and the and the uh, the challenges that we face in a day-to-day uh, pr- uh, profession that uses a lot of medicines and deals with medicines and and you know that's a part of your your standard practice for them it's not necessarily a comfortable place but you can help them to come to that that place where they feel more at ease with working with medicines anyway. So emotional intelligence would be incredibly important in your role to share information, to be effective in your role. Um, And, yes, when you're dealing with the public or you're dealing with people who pregnancy, breastfeeding, some very stressful times in their life, possibly even the first time, and they have lots of questions for you. Um, So maybe you have some insights into how you – um, approach or share information with the patients to put them at ease or how you work through situations with them to increase their confidence and education? It's an excellent question. Um, yes, it's a skill that you acquire with experience, I think, in day in, day out, talking to people, listening to people. Listening, I think, is an underrated skill at so many levels. So listening to where they're coming from and I say to my interns, it's it's not about the question you're asked. It's about the question that's often behind the question. What what are they really saying to you? Because they don't necessarily know how to express what they're after, if that makes sense. Um, for example, even even trained medical staff will ask me questions. What are the what are the side effects of drug X? And so. Okay, um, but can you give me a little bit more insight as to why you're asking that question? Have you seen an experience with an adverse effect that you're trying to associate with that drug? Or is there another reason why you're asking that question? Because I can give you a, a consumer medicine information level that gives you a list of 50 potential adverse effects. That's not going to help you very much. But if you say to me, yes, this patient has a particular problem, that's this or this, and and we've just started on a particular medicine or they've been on it for a long time, could this be associated with it? That changes the question completely, if that makes sense, I hope. So it's about identifying, asking more questions to... A lot of my work is asking more questions and, and listening closely to the answers and then possibly asking even more questions. So... So it's identifying what's at the heart of the the matter and, again, just conversing with the people. You're trying to be upfront. You're not trying to cover up or or distort information. You're trying to be as honest as you possibly can without scaring the daylights out of them because pregnancy and breastfeeding are sometimes very scary places, not only for patients but for Medical staff, again, prescribers, nursing staff, pharmacists are very uncomfortable in these areas of practice I've found over the years. And if it's in your zone and it's what you do, 
it's not a problem. But if it's not what you routinely feel comfortable with, it's a very scary place. And um, and a lot of a lot of people struggle with the changes that come about in a pregnancy environment. A lot of people struggle with again the the challenges that breastfeeding pose. Now you of all people know some of those challenges, but if you haven't been through that process, and particularly men, men fail to identify a lot of the a lot of the things that are going on in pregnancy and breastfeeding environments, and the mental health challenges along the way in that zone are substantial. And again. You and I know those because we've seen just a taste of that. And some people cope very, very well, but some people do not face those challenges, particularly things like exhaustion or poor health or, or poor nutrition or a whole range of other things that they don't get enough support in can make life very difficult for them. So there would be some referrals that you would be doing as well by the sounds? Absolutely. A big part of my role is directing people to where they can get the help that they need. And there are some great people. I've Over the years, I've worked with terrific people in the community, be they community pharmacists, and some of those are outstanding members of the community, and I have nothing but respect and the same with maternal and child health nurses. There's some terrific nurses out there working their, their butts off, really, to try and get an, a good outcome for, for their patients. As I think most of us healthcare professionals are after the same thing. We want a good outcome for our patients, but but sometimes we uh, we struggle in an area in which we're unfamiliar, and, and that's the zone of pregnancy and breastfeeding and paediatrics for all, particularly for men. I find men, practic male practitioners, do struggle in a lot of those challenging areas. Um, and again, if it's not, that, not what they're comfortable with, they tend to often give, without, without I, I shouldn't generalise, but they don't tend to be comfortable, so they'll just say, no, you can't do it. And that is not a good outcome for their patient when there are lots of tweaks or flexible um, implementations we can put in that will make it safe and also will make it a much better outcome for our patients at the end of the day. We tend to deprive a lot of our pregnant and breastfeeding women options that are now available that no longer for a simple really simple example is antihistamine so often the information we advise patients is you can't have non-sedating antihistamines while you're breastfeeding or pregnant and yet they are routinely and widely used in these areas of practice and yet the packet's still saying caution pregnancy or don't use this if you're breastfeeding or seek medical advice <laughs> Medical advice isn't sometimes forthcoming here. <laughs> actually, that's quite true. There are a lot of products that actually say seek medical advice, um, even if they are sometimes tailored, um, even vaginal thrush and things like that, um, even though 
people will experience a lot more of that potentially in pregnancy. Um, there are products that they say seek medical advice and things like that, and people always exercise caution. Patients do too when they read the boxes and it says seek further medical advice if they take the daylights out of them, quite honestly. So I would take calls nearly every day, usually from doctors, to say why can't or what, why is this inappropriate in a breastfeeding setting? I had one today with a patient with severe migraines who was breastfeeding, had been denied sumatriptan, immigrant. And I said, of course, it's absolutely fine. There's no problem in that in a breastfeeding environment. But that wasn't the indication from the manufacturer's literature and other things. People, and, and particularly pharmacists, they fail to realise that there's a huge difference between clinical advice and medical legal manufacturers advice and and they haven't quite got that dissociation uh, between the two uh, and that's really important i think for young pharmacists to understand that just because it says something in a product information or a manufacturer's advice doesn't necessarily mean that that is going to give you the clinical outcome that's best for your particular patient so I'm going to ask you to probably share some of the common misconceptions um, or common um, advice pharmacists can give that um, to their relevant patients. Um, and then I might ask you afterwards also what resources they might be able to use to, ease, to get some answers for the easier questions as well. Yeah, that's a very good couple of questions in there. So I put my medication pharmacist hat on and say there are some excellent resources available if you know where to find them. And it's, I guess that's one of the big challenges over the years. In days gone by, I was a struggle to find information. Nowadays, we're overwhelmed with information. And unfortunately, so much of it is not reliable advice, particularly again in pregnancy and breastfeeding and paediatrics it's very very hard to get good simple basic information in those areas of practice now some more than others paediatrics obviously there are some great resources but again they're not simple and it's not something you can just say yes or no to usually it's it's a more uh, nuanced response that you're going to have to give. You're going to have to consider a lot of factors. How old is the child, as, as is the case with breastfeeding and pregnancy? How old? How far into pregnancy? Have they got any other medical conditions? So it's like any other practice of medicine. You need to have a little bit of background, a five-minute history, before you can provide advice that might be appropriate for that particular patient so it's really important to ask those quick questions again first before you can start dishing out too much information that may or may not be correct for your patient so resources simple simply um, if I had to say to a community pharmacist if you've got the chart the time to have a look in breastfeeding it's simply lactmed just google lactmed that's the National Library of Medicine in the US, they put profiles out on all sorts of medicines for breastfeeding. It's a fantastic resource, free, no charge, takes a little bit of getting used to, as they all do. The other one that's very, very good is infantrisk.com. It's a .com site, I know, but it's uh, 
It's uh, a site from Professor Thomas Hale at Texas Tech University. He's considered the world's leading expert. So those two references alone in breastfeeding would cover every topic you probably care to know. Um, pregnancy is much harder to give you easy and simple references. A good colleague of mine, Mr. Ron Badagol, who is formerly head of the uh, pharmacy department at Royal Women's, and one of my great mentors, wrote a book on this topic. He's one of the few Australian authors that have ever done that. Didn't sell, wasn't widely publicised because I think people didn't know it existed and um, it didn't get widely distributed throughout the, particularly the, it's a hard thing to target because you have to target it at the right level. So your levels of understanding are very right across from the very basic right through to the very complex. But even people like obstetricians don't have much of a handle on breastfeeding sometimes. I know that sounds kind of weird, but but it's not their expertise. So if it's out of their zone, it's not really what their interest is. And, and I work with some of the best specialists ever. In, in the practice of medicine through Monash. But if breastfeeding isn't part of what they do, then they often have absolutely no idea of what's safe or what's not. And, and, and that's absolutely appropriate because it's not their expertise, it's not what they, they do. But they'll often, instead of saying, I don't know, which is not your standard response, um, they'll say, no, you can't do that or you you know you have to go elsewhere for advice but people don't know where to go they just don't know there's not a lot of focus on this area of practice you would understand it's hard to get good quality advice in a situation where you're pregnant or breastfeeding or you've got a young baby particularly at the moment lots of people away on holidays lots of healthcare professionals that you would normally rely on may not be around and, and really challenging to get some help. So what are some of those misconceptions or just daily advice pharmacists can take into consideration when working with people and giving advice on pregnancy and breastfeeding? Mm, I think the one we just touched on, if you don't know, be upfront about it, I think. Is, is particularly when you're early in your career, it's not a good idea to try and bluff your way through um, sure, you'll be thrown in the deep end, inevitably these days, you tend to be given assignments that are way beyond your scope, but, but you can find answers, don't try and just say, um, no, you can't do that. I think it's really important that you, you either seek out the expertise, and that's what I've had to do with a lot of my career, and still now, I'll have to seek expertise of those that might be more appropriate than me to it. For example, we get a lot of calls about diagnostic imaging and those sort of things in a pregnant environment. I'm sure I've dealt with a lot of them and I feel, it's again, it's uncomfortable dealing with it, but if you're not comfortable with it, if you don't know the answer, you're best to not try and advise patients. You're better off to say, look, I'll ask the question and come back to you, or I'll try and find out and give you some insight. Um, that's one piece, I guess, and sadly, I do get a lot of calls from people saying I was told this and this and this, 
and the advice is very, very misleading and, and very, very uh, unhelpful, shall we say. And that comes from right across the healthcare professions, nurses, doctors, community pharmacists and, and many others. Um, it's, it's really, I think, um, one of the, the sad things that we, we tend to think, okay, I'll find that information in my, in my computer. I'll find that advice, but the advice you're often getting, whether you realise it or not, is coming from a manufacturer and, and their interest is not best served by good outcomes. Theirs is best served by their lawyers telling them this is what you will put in your product information. And there's a big difference between how lawyers' perspective on this and my perspective on this. So that's, I guess that's one thing. Misconceptions, there are so many. It, it really is. I guess that's what keeps me going is the fact that in so many other areas we've made massive progress and we have made great progress in looking after our, um, pregnant and breastfeeding women but, but in terms of advising them about medicines despite the work of many of my very esteemed colleagues and that goes back a long way there's some great people we're still really in the dark ages with respect to helping that particular niche group. And it's only a, it's not a large group, but they're a very passionate group. Breastfeeding women, you probably know, are one of the most passionate and um, enthusiastic community groups that are out there. And pregnant women too. They're the most, one of the most vulnerable groups, um, very much so. They're, they've, they've um, despite the fact that we, we've done a lot better in recent times they're still very um underserviced in terms of of the, a lot of their needs i think okay so i was thinking about some of the advice that i've heard or some of the <laughs> so people would say well you can breastfeed and then you can take your medicine then and then you probably won't breastfeed for at least another two hours and so then you've got a safe window there if you're taking something that is more likely to affect you if you're breastfeeding. It's probably you're not excited. No. No? No, I wish I could go along with that. <laughs> Give me some more. Tell me some more. <laughs> Obviously it depends a lot. There's, there's a great introduction if, if people are really interested in this. There's a four or five page introduction. There, there's some great resources. For example, there is a, um, a medicines information workbook or um, a guide for medicines information um, uh, aspirants, if you will, put out by SHPA, that is a training module for people coming into medicines information. And it covers a lot of the, the, the basics of going into it, but it also equally applies to, to as I say, clinical pharmacy. Um, if you're going into a particular area of practice, a specialty area of practice, it gives you an outline of what to anticipate, what are the questions, what are the circumstances you'll find yourself in. It, it's a great resource. So it's the, it's the SHPA... Um, I think we just, the name has evolved a couple of times since it was first put together, but it's basically the um, Medicines Information Handbook um, for Training Manual. It was the Training Manual. I think it exists in that form. But unfortunately, it's not in a paper format these days. And uh, 
like so many other resources, you have to rely on e-books or e-journals. Or, um, I'm old school. I, I, it's not, I'm not as good at that, but I have to be. Um, that's, uh, that's an excellent resource for going into this. So it'll give you a, a, a nutshell concept of what are the certain um, principles that guide prescribing in that area. Somebody like Thomas Hale does the same for breastfeeding in the front of his. He puts out a, a book that's $100, a phenomenal resource. So everything you probably ever need to know is in there, but he publishes it every couple of years to just try and keep up to date. Um, pumping and dumping is a waste of time, if that makes sense, for breastfeeding, we're wasting our time with that. Normally you don't need to withhold, very very uncommonly do you need to withhold, but it does depend on the half-life of the drug. For antibiotics it's a waste of time because anything that's got a half-life of more than three or four hours is not going to be feasible unless you've got an older baby, if you've got a very young baby you're feeding every two or three hours, if you've got an older baby you're feeding maybe every four, five or six hours depending on what their solid intake is. It, it's such a variable um, area of practice, there, there are so many things to consider within it, as, as with all areas, you have to, there's no simple easy tips you can sort of give except to say um, as I said, don't take manufacturer's advice at face value because you can't. And and even even the very good my very good friends at the Australian Medicines Handbook, it's very challenging for them to uh, to balance up um, good clinical advice versus again medical legal and and bureaucratic requirements of information. For example, you know how. If, if I can dig, if I can digress. You know how with COVID we've put out a lot of advice that's been considered very poor advice because it's one thing for the health advice to come out and it's another thing for government advisement to come out and they don't often necessarily coincide. So this is our challenge, the, the sort of bureaucracy on one hand, the administrative requirements on the other hand, the medical legal requirements over here. There are so many pockets of direction that, that conflict with the clinical outcomes. And I'm a clinician, I always have been. I can't consider myself as a, as a bureaucrat or a, a technician as such. I'm a clinical practitioner and even though I don't work in a ward and or I don't work at a, at a, a, a dispensary, dishing out medicines and advice to people, um, I'm just as much a clinician, even though I sit at a computer and a desk all day taking calls from people who do the work out in the field. So I have two more questions I can think of. Um, one is, you've been doing telehealth a long time before the rest of us have um, in medicines information. So um, obviously with COVID, it's brought a lot more people to have to ask questions, give information via different means without it always being face-to-face. You can't always do the physical check of the patient um, and you're trying to gather a lot more. I guess what I would say is if you're doing things over the phone or are there other ways um, through your years of experience or any tips that you have for people if they're 
not always seeing people face to face to give the best advice. Oh, it is a very dangerous business giving advice over a telephone as I do. And those of, those of us who work in a variety of areas that work over a telephone uh, know well the challenges, uh, the assumptions you sometimes make because you don't get the body language and the expression. And the, uh, There are whole books written on this topic, as you well know. Um, yeah, it's, it's extremely difficult and I wouldn't advocate it for anybody in a... a but I think it requires enormous experience before you go into that area even. So I have nothing but nothing but praise for GPs that have been able to get us through working in this area and my community colleagues out on the coalface uh, working in those high-risk areas with scary patients coming at them um, and not-so-scary patients, but you're never quite sure who's the scary ones and who's not. Um it's, it's difficult. It, it's really difficult. And, and how can I say, I, I get into trouble on a regular basis, even though I'm aware of the traps. Uh, it's, it's just something you get a, it, it's very hard to stay out of trouble in this zone. Uh, because um, even at the best of times, you're under a lot of pressure. Sometimes the cores are becoming incredibly thick and fast. And taking shortcuts is not a good option in this setting. You tend to assume things because you haven't got time to go through it in some depth. You don't get a very good picture that way. And so telehealth, while it's got us through, it's been the only thing that gets us through, it, it is not a good way to practice medicine, or pharmacy, uh, or clinical diagnosis, or, or anything else along those lines. It, it, Sadly, much the same, unfortunately, is um, continuing education. I really miss the, the local experience of having a, a presenter in front of you, um, uh, you know, Jenny Gowan and Louis Roller and those esteemed members of our profession who put so much of their personality and their, their skill into the presentation itself. And it doesn't come across the same way because it can't come across the same way. And I, I'm sad that I've done a, a number of presentations for a whole range of people now on webinars and it's just, I don't get the same feedback that I get from a live audience where I can I can relate to where how I'm going with them. If I'm going badly, I can change tack. But you don't get that with a webinar or telehealth. If you if you're not on the right track, it's easy to miss that. And one of the final ones, please, if you have anything else. But I was going to ask about um, aspirin. In um, I guess there's been a lot more discussion about it or people becoming more and more aware. But I thought you can give us your perspective and your explanation from the background so people can feel really confident because obviously people that are high risk of miscarriage or um, they're taking 75 milligrams of aspirin on a, a daily basis um, and, you know, pharmacists are just getting used to that. So I thought you could just give us yeah. a bit more of a background. Well, like many about. other things, as you say, if it's out of your comfort zone, you feel, oh, this isn't quite right. They've been doing studies for decades on this topic, and the CLAFS study back in the 2000s um, was, was a good example, didn't show any particular benefit. But on reassessment, as is often the case with uh, evaluations, 
we've reevaluated, and I would consider all private obstetricians would prescribe aspirin to high-risk patients because pregnancy is a very pro-thrombotic situation. It, it, the major problems with pregnancy are clotting at a very large... Uh, immunosuppression and clotting are right up there. And um, today I had a stroke patient who had a stroke uh, in, in her pregnancy very very common a lot of people with various medical conditions uh, laden factors and a whole range of, of medical reasons that they tend to be prothrombotic and and that poses big risks in pregnancy so you see a lot of dvts pe's all sorts of mi's um etc in a pregnancy environment it's a high risk environment for thrombotic diseases, blood clots particularly. And so my way of thinking is the disease far outweighs the risk of the medicine and the aspirin in this case is a very low risk medicine and it is very, um, in fact, there's this recent study at Monash which hasn't quite come to evaluation yet. Um, they were using 200 milligram. There's a strong suggestion that 200 milligram a day was much, much better than 75 or 100 a day, well, we'll wait and see. The, the, that's one of the big challenges with what I do. You'll see an enormous array of papers published on a particular topic. It's evaluating those papers and looking at the methodology and, and scrutinising it, not just looking at it, scrutinising it, because I've seen all sorts of rubbish published over the years that has proven to be very detrimental to outcomes and, um, you know, I, I'm very sceptical about everything I read, uh, or I'll take it with a grain of salt. I shouldn't say sceptical. There's some excellent, obviously, fantastic work being done. But you've got to be very careful in accepting it for face value until you spend a little bit of time with it, and particularly in a pregnancy environment, because it takes a long time between starting to use a medicine in a pregnancy environment and feeling comfortable with it in a pregnancy environment. A great example is, say, MABs, all the monoclonal antibodies. We're seeing hundreds, if not thousands, of them now. And a lot of them are employed in a pregnancy environment. And we feel pretty okay because they don't tend to cross the placenta until about 30 weeks or in the latter part of the trimester. So from that perspective, we feel pretty okay. But some of them we've only just been introduced to, so we don't know what they're going to do. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a complicated business. It's a it's a challenging business for the for the very best minds, let alone people like myself, to try and come to grips with it. Um, is there any other information that you would like to share with the listeners? Um, I I was just sort of thinking back on my career, and I I think the highlight of it have been the people I've worked with and I, I know you've had a lot of people saying the same thing in your podcast but I've worked with some tremendous people and I have great faith in humanity that those great and I've spoken to so many people over the years in my role community pharmacists as I say hospital people doctors nurses the whole range of, of uh, health uh, uh, personnel and 
it gives me great hope for the future. I, I see it as a very, often a very, I don't know what's the right word I'm looking for. I'm looking down my list of, of what I was going to say. And I, I think it's it's a vocation for, for many, many people. They're not in it for the money particularly. They're not in it for the 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 kudos they're in it to try and genuinely help people and that deserves great respect and I think you know it's been tough okay everybody knows it's been tough but they're very resilient and they're very determined group I find pharmacists I'm I'm really hopeful for the future because I've seen that's what keeps me young is the young people coming through that I see and work with, and it's a great mix. My experience and their new knowledge and their up-to-date information. I've forgotten all that stuff. Come on, that was a long time ago, but they keep me young. They keep me on my toes. They challenge me to be at the best that I can be, and that, again, gives me reason to challenge them to be the best they can. So... Therein lies the challenge, old versus young, somewhere in the middle. I have, uh, uh, again, seen some tremendous people and uh, I have nothing but thanks for the people that have uh, helped me in the profession and thanks for the profession itself because it's been uh, very rewarding in terms of, as I said, just meeting those people, helping so many people. I find that in itself is um, is pretty good reward. At the end of the day, I feel good about hopefully, having helped a lot of people. And they appreciate it too. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> but that's all right. It's okay. At the end of the day, we can usually uh, come to some sort of uh, consensus, shall we say. <laughs> But I, I, I'll quickly say, you know, a couple of the mentors that really quickly come to mind, as I said, strong women, I think has been really important to help me work in an area that closely associates with women and, and a lot of young women. I mean, I'm an old guy and I'm talking to young women. It's hard to relate, you think. Well, I don't know. I reckon having those strong role models was a big part of my respect and an understanding of where they were coming from. But, uh, and uh, and we're so lucky to have people like John Jackson has been a, a mentor for me over many, many years. And even though I've never actually worked with John, I've heard him present on so many occasions and his eloquence uh, in, in describing how the profession works and, and how the people within it work. I'm not just saying that, John, because, you know, I want the next uh, award going up, but um, but really uh, my thanks to people like your good self and, and all the, the leadership of both PSA and SHPA. I wish there could be a closer association. That saddens me somewhat in that um, I'd like to see us work a little more closely. That's always been a battle over the years and I think it's an unnecessary one. I think a lot of it's the turf wars we hear about between pharmacists and doctors is all somewhat artificial because I think at the coalface, I think there's tremendous camaraderie uh, from my experience. I don't think there's ever been a problem that I've particularly encountered. Oh, of course, individuals, but but uh, I, I see that as a great uh, 
combination of skill sets personally. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.